0: All right, everybody. Welcome back. Season 5 premiere of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. If you haven't been here before, I'm Dean Jenkins. I'm the host. And tonight, this is the way to kick off any season. We got a real American hero with us tonight. We're joined by Detective Mario Oliveira, who's retired, and he survived one of the most uh, gruesome and nightmarish ordeals for lack of a better way to put it, that I've ever heard. And he's here to share his story and share everything that he went through with all of you. My hope for tonight is that I know a lot of police officers in the uh, Massachusetts and New England area have seen the show before and have seen and maybe even seen Mario talk in person. But my hope is that a lot of people that aren't in law enforcement also uh, join us tonight and that those of you in law enforcement, you share this show with your, your non-law uh, enforcement brothers and sisters, so they can get a better feel and a better flavor for what's at stake every time that we suit up and hit the streets. So, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring Mario on, and he's going to tell you a little bit about himself and how he's been rolling. Mario, how you doing? Good evening, sir. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it, it's an honor for you to come and join us. We are uh, we're, we're so we're so blessed and so happy to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what have you been up to, and what were, your, what were some of the highlights of your careers?
1: Sure. Um, I was on the job for about um, close to 17 years, um, worked for some of the PD um, in 2000, end of 2008, 2000, beginning of 2009, I was assigned to the ATF in Boston. Um, had a short-lived career there, sadly, as you know, I got shot in line of duty in 2010, I uh, went back to work only to suffer a subsequent medical setback, two of them actually, a heart attack and a stroke. That forced me out. Um, I've been involved in some nonprofit work, uh, one being Cops Concerns of Police Survivors. I've been involved with them for 22 years since I put on the job. And um, as of late, within, uh, since 2012, I founded another organization called VIPO, Violently Injured Police Officers, where my partner and I, while in from Uber, we actually assist those that are permanently injured, we're, we're working with uh, legislators to try to make some, some new laws to give them some benefits. I'll get into that later on in the show.
0: Mario, um, it's it's amazing what you've been doing. A lot of people would have went through what you went through, and they would have said, "You know what? I've done my time. I don't want to hear about it, talk about it, think about it." But what did you do? You went, you dove right back into the deep end of the pool. Um, and, and you just got right back in there. You're trying to help those of us that are still out there trying to uh, fight the good fight. So we appreciate you. Uh, so what I'm going to do for those of you, just to give you a little flavor, is just show you a quick video that'll give you a little taste. And then Mario's going to go into it and fill in a lot of what, um, what we're all here to see. So step yeah. by.
1: He lost me twice. I
2: died twice on the table.
1: A Somerville detective almost killed in the line of duty is now retiring. Mario Oliveira was shot six times while executing a search warrant in 2010.
3: And new at six tonight, he talks to New Center 5's Della Richardson about his terrifying ordeal, his fight for survival, and why leaving is so bittersweet.
2: Despite the chronic... um pains and discomforts every single day. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be alive and be able to play with my kids.
3: Detective Mario Olivera put in 15 years and two months as a Somerville cop. The shooting, November 2010, nearly killed him. I
2: was thinking, I'm dead, I'm dying. And uh, that's when I was telling the paramedic, you do your job and I'm going to do mine. You keep me alive and I'm going to fight to stay alive. I was actually shot six times from what the doctors told me, but um, they went from three to five to, it's actually six times. I, have, I got shot um, once in my forearm, that went um, out the back of my elbow, um, twice in my chest, and three in my stomach.
3: With the ATF Task Force, he got hundreds of guns off the street. He is the highest decorated officer. This, the first week of retirement, bittersweet at age 45.
2: I have a bullet in my back and some bullet fragments of my stomach and permanent nerve damage in my arm and my hand. And then I suffered a heart attack after I went back to work. And I figured um, that was my body telling me, time to quit.
3: Olivera was the first to the car door to confront a known gun dealer during the shooting four years ago. After surviving the shooting, the suspect's associates made threats on Olivera's life.
2: Some of the people wanted to finish me off.
3: In retirement, he's deeply devoted to talking to cops and helping departments cope with grief. In Somerville, Rondella Richardson, WCVB News Center 5.
0: Powerful stuff. So, Mario, the floor is yours. Take us back to that night. Take us back to everything that, that led up to that. Sure.
1: So um, in early, uh, actually mid-2010, I would say probably um, middle of September, I received a, um, a report, a multiple gun sales report. Um, let me digress for a second to the audience. In 1968 the federal the federal government passed the the Gun Control Act of 1968. And that pretty much it mandates shop owners to report multiple sales. So if you buy more than two guns in a span of 5 business days, the shop owner reports those transax- transactions to the local ATF office. And I got one of these reports. It was for a young man from Somerville who bought 10 guns in a week. He was 21 years old. I don't know about you, Dean, but what 21-year-old do you know that buys 10 guns in a week? I would say something was definitely a mess there. So following my gut instinct, I started doing some digging, and I learned through my investigation that this kid had made friends with another young man in New Hampshire, paid him money to put his name on his lease that gave him residency in New Hampshire. And with this fictitious lease that he had now, He went in on October 8th to the RMV and got a New Hampshire driver's license, all the while having an active mass driver's license, which is a no-no. And he went in to the RMV, acquired a new driver's license, and then within a half hour of getting that freshly printed license, he made a beeline to the gun store where he bought his first two guns. And he repeated this process for for the following week. Um, And what I learned through my investigation, was that, um, I'll say his name, Matt Krister was the young man. He would use a Dremel and he would obliterate the serial numbers of these guns. And he would take orders from the gang members in Boston. They would tell him, like, get me a 40-cal, get me a 9mm, whatever. He would take the serial numbers off of them. He'd buy the gun with his own cash of 400 bucks. Then he'd meet these kids in Boston and sell them for like 1800 He was making good money. Now that was his game. So at one point, I brought him into the station along with my partner, Special Agent Higgins. Uh, we brought Matt into the Somerville Police Department using the rules. Um, and uh, he came in um, under the auspices of he thought he was going to see a photo array, which I had no photo array to show him. That's how I lured him into the station. At Buffalo, you know? So, and, so uh, that's what a
0: ruse is, just so for people that aren't in public work.
1: A ruse is uh, a, tact, a tactic that we use in law enforcement where we can lie to, to the public, public and lure them into the police department so we can talk to them about an incident. So they're thinking they're coming for one reason, but they're really not. So we're permitted to lie, essentially, using a ruse. So we trick people to come to the station thinking they're going in there for another reason, but we really want to talk to them about a crime Or an incident. So this kid came in thinking he was going to look at a photo already. Because he had been stabbed at a party. So he thought I was going to show him a photo. He came in. My partner and I sat him down. And um, after a few short minutes, he confessed to his crimes. He told us everything. That he was going up to New Hampshire, buying guns, meeting these kids in Boston, and selling them. So, being the nice guy that I am, I gave him a deal of a lifetime. Rather than arresting him and sending him to federal prison, I offered him an opportunity to work for the police and work off his crimes by being an informant working for me and my partner so we could dismantle the gang in Boston. Well, what we do at the ATF is we would give this kid guns with no firing pins, real guns. He would sell them to these criminals and we would watch the whole thing and come in and arrest everybody. We would unarrest Matt after the kid went to the station so, no one, it would, it would look like everybody got arrested. And then we would repeat this process over and over again until we got everybody under arrest. So, I, um, I walked Matt out to the front door. He hemmed him hard for a little bit. He said he was going to work and he wasn't going to work and he was crying. And I looked at him as one of my little brothers. You know, I have six brothers and I felt bad for the kid. I really did. I gave him a hug. I walked him out to the front door and I told him, I got your back. Do the right thing by me, and I'll take care of you. And when we're done with this case, we'll put you in witness protection program, move you out of state, give you a new identity. You'll start your life all over again. You're 21 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. you know, and That's what, what I was thinking. Honestly, that's what I did,
0: actually. So how, how, did he re- how did he receive that when you brought that to him like that? Initially, he said, I'm not a rat. I'm from Somerville. We're not rats. I said, Matt,
1: you can go to prison. Or you can be a free man. You can help the police. I'm right you wrong. What's your choice? I gave him a few minutes. I walked out of the room and got a of water. I came back and he was in tears. He was reluctant. And then he said, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. So we had, we had scheduled a um, one of these reverse sting operations for the next day to get our first guy. And um, I told him, I said, meet me at the station at 11 a.m., and um, we'll do our first operation. I was like, right, no problem. Next day, I'm at the station with all my guys, my chief, deputy chiefs, ATF guys. And 11 o'clock came around and I'm looking at my watch. And I'm like, looking at the door. Never came in. I called his phone, write the voicemail, called him half a dozen times, write the voicemail. Finally, my boss told me he's not coming. i get warrants for him. He's done. So I ended up getting federal warrants for his arrest, and um, he, uh, I, you know, I called him, I called him. That night, I went home. I had a fake Facebook account, and I went in, and I had friended him at the onset of this investigation. When I went onto his Facebook wall, I saw that he wrote, fuck the ATF, fuck the Somerville Police, I'm going to do me and do me strong. That's what he wrote on his Facebook page. That night, I was, like, beside myself. Here's a kid that I try to help after he screwed up. And this is the thanks that I get. A disrespect disrespectful little bastard, right? That's what you're thinking. So now, wands are in the system. He called me the next day from an unknown number. And I answered. And I asked him why he didn't show up. And he said, I changed my mind. These guys are going to kill you, and they're going to kill me. I can't do this." And I said, Matt, all bets are off. I'm coming for you. You're going to jail. i you an opportunity. There's no more deals. You're done. And um, that was the last I heard of him. So, my partner and I had made several trips to his house um, at different times of the day for the I mean, upcoming weeks. We are there at night, in the morning, late at night. No signs of his car. He drove a red two-door Honda record. He was amongst the missing. I figured he was going to Florida or something. Knew he was wanted. Knew he made a big mistake. Wouldn't you leave? I'd right?
0: be gone, yeah.
1: Exactly. You're not hanging around. So I thought. So um, fast forward now to November 2nd, 2010. It was a Tuesday. It was election night. I had a detail that day, that morning. And my plan was to work a detail and work a night shift with Brian and just go home. That was my plan. I remember just leaving my door, didn't say goodbye to my wife or my son because I was in a rush like we always are as cops, right? We're always banging out details, going to my shift, back and forth. And I remember just leaving because I was in a rush. I worked a detail, I got signed out a little earlier than usual. I called up Brian, I said, hey, I'm out, I'm going to go to the station, work out a little bit, I'll shower and change there, and let's meet up in the lobby around 4 p.m. Brian said, yeah, no problem, we'll meet you there. Uh, So everything worked out in a timely fashion. I um, met Brian at the station, we were talking about what we were going to do, we were going to the projects, we were going to just try to just drum up some business, you know, talk to some local young kids to see if we can talk to them. They can give us some information on guns and drugs and what have you. Typical stuff that, you know, undercover guys do. And um, now we uh, we went to the store real quick. Brian says to me, hey, let's take a ride by Chris's house. You have the warrant? I said, yeah, it's in my car. So we went into, we hopped into his car, which was a black Chevy Caprice or Impala. Um, I'm sorry. four door Impala, And we drove up Highland Ave. He lived on Gibbon Street, right now, two blocks away from City Hall. And now it's getting dark. It's around 6 o'clock, 6.15. We took a left on Gibbon Street, which was his street. And as we came down halfway down the street, it's so a one-way, it was his car off in front of his house. So I said, Oh sh. I got my phone, I called my sergeant, I actually called two sergeants, um, had them meet us around the corner. So Brian and I and the two sergeants are, you know, we're talking about how we're going to do this operation. It's election night in the city, 630 at night. So the city's hopping. People are going to vote at the voting voting polls. They're going to dinner. They're coming home from dinner, what have you. So there's a lot of foot traffic and a lot of motor vehicle traffic. And um, so, of course, we're, we're conscious enough to know we don't want innocent people getting shot. This guy's a gun guy potentially, you know, who knows. And um, so the plan was, we were going to wait him out. He was going to come out of his house. I'm in a parking lot across the street. Some bushes for cover and a little opening, a little driveway opening you can fit a car in. So the plan was, I'm going to come through the bushes across the street and when the kid turns his back to go into his car, I'm going to go from behind and hit him, get him to the ground and cuff him up. Ryan is gonna come up the one way street the wrong way in his unmarked car with no headlights and he's just gonna hit him hit his bumper and box him in. My two sergeants are gonna come up the street and be my backup on foot. And then I had a detective at the top of the street in case Matt put it in reverse and try to leave the other way, he would go his his access point. Exit point I should say. So now we agreed upon this last minute operation. Six thirty at night. Again, very very busy. As soon as we said, yeah, let, let's do this, I remember looking over my shoulder through the bushes, and I saw his porch light come on. He was in the doorway. He was wearing a, a black, puffy, down jacket with a, um, with a backpack strapped around his shoulder. He was waving to somebody in the house. I couldn't see who it was from my distance, obviously. There was somebody in that house with him. I later learned that it was his mother. Um, so now, I'm walking away from my guys... I grabbed my radio, handheld radio that was in my pocket. I just said, guys, that's our target. Everybody get ready to move in. Those were the last transmissions you heard me say on the radio that night. So now I make it to the edge of the bushes, and he comes out of his door, his yard. He's walking really, really fast, faster than I expected. And he made it into his, his car. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second because I want your audience to know. I know these streets like the back of my hand. It's dark out. The last thing I want is a foot pursuit. Because what I don't know are the backyards. I don't know who's got trampolines, broken fences, kids' toys, dog poop. I mean cops bust their knees and get hurt really, really bad. Having foot chases at night, lifted you know uneven sidewalks, you name it. You don't know a sidewalk where a sidewalk begins, where it ends, fire hydrants. I mean there's so many different different obstacles. You just you get hurt really, really easy. So again, I'm of trying to avoid a foot pursuit. I want the element of surprise. So, Like I said, he made it to his car before I can get to him. So I, as soon as he opened the car door and he shut, shut it, I made a quick beeline, gun in my hand, that badges out over my, I had a nylon, Nike nylon hooded sweatshirt. And I made it to the car door. I opened the door. I grabbed him by the neck. I get my gun to his head and I'm giving him commands. Get out of the effing car. Get out of the effing car right now. You're under arrest. He grabs my wrist. And he's trying to get me off of his throat. And he's looking at me, screaming at the top of his lungs, saying, Fucking shoot me. Fucking shoot me. Fucking shoot me. And at that point, I remember, I'm with the adrenaline, I'm jamming my gun on the side of his head. You know, trying to rip him out. Because he lifted his ass off the seat and he stretched his legs. So it made it really difficult for me to rip him out. And... Right at that moment, I saw my slide halfway back on my gun. And I looked at it and I said, Oh shit. I was thinking to myself, if my gun goes off and this kid's unarmed, I'm the one that's the I'm gonna lose my job. So I eased up off the gun, still holding on to his neck, and at that moment I heard my sergeant screaming my name. And I looked all the roof of the car to see what he wanted. He was yelling, Mario, Mario, Mario. And I looked up to see what the hell I wanted. And when I looked back down, all I saw was flashes. Boop, 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 boop. boop. Six rapid shots. And the, I took the impact of these rounds. Less than two feet away. Still with my hand on his neck. And I fell out of the car. I landed on my ass. And I remember just looking up and looking at him. And my brain was working. I was telling myself, get the fuck up and run. Get covered. Get behind something and shoot him. Get behind, but I couldn't move. I felt paralyzed. I remember everything was echoing. I heard immediate, rapid gunfire: pop, 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 pop. It was like it wouldn't stop. It was like someone had a machine gun and was just firing off rounds. And at some point, as I'm hearing all these echoing shots, I felt someone grab me. By well, the car, my sweatshirt, and my t shirt, and lift me up off the ground. And I looked, it was Brian Higgins, my partner in the ATF. And thank God he had military experience. He did some some, um, some time overseas, I think it was Afghanistan. So he saw battle. He had the wherewithal to leave his post behind the car. He grabbed me and he was shooting into the car. I remember seeing everything in slow motion. His shell casings were coming out of his gun in slow motion, one by one, and my eyes were following it. And then I felt he dragged me across the street. And he left me like under a parked car. And I was on my side. I'm hyperventilating. My My heart was in my throat. And I could feel blood gushing out of me, you know, all up my upper torso. pants I was panicked. I was, I was shitless, to be honest with you. So I'm on my side, and... I can, I can see the kid in the car. He's playing chicken. He's looking over the steering wheel, playing chicken with the cops. My brain said, I can shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And I try to lift my arm up. But all I heard was, wow. but my arm wasn't moving. At that point is when I looked at my arm, I had a huge hole in my sweatshirt. I realized that I took a round and went through my forearm it went through my alma nerves out the back of my elbow. I couldn't pull my trigger. finger. I'll tell you, it was probably the hottest moment of my life. Because I felt so defeated. I felt helpless. Couldn't help myself. Couldn't help my guys. I remember just looking up at the sky. I just said, I'm not going home. I'm not going die. I'm not going home today. All the while, I can hear the commotion, yelling and screaming. He's still, he's still moving. He's still moving. Pop, pop, pop. I actually heard his mother yelling, "That's my son! You're shooting my son!" The cops were telling him to get back in the house and whatnot. Finally, actually, let me let me stop right there, so I don't forget. It's an important part. But during this shootout and this commotion, it was really, really that loud. I remember my mind did something miraculous. For a short period of time. My mind shut off all the noise, and the, gun, the gunshots, and the screaming and yelling. I remember going in a peaceful trance mentally, where I remember going fishing as a young boy. I remember my senior prom. I remember playing with on Rush Street, where I grew up in of them. with all my childhood friends. It was almost like I was waiting to go to heaven. I felt the sense of peace for those few seconds. And then suddenly, my mind shifted back to reality where I could hear the gunshots again and, and all the commotion and all the, the yelling and screaming. And then the gunshots stopped. My guys ran over to me. I was on my back at this point. And they they lift, lifted my head up. They said I was ash gray and my eyes were rolling on the back of my head. But I wouldn't shut the up. I kept yelling at them, Get me out of here. Throw me in the trunk. Throw me in the back seat. Get me the fuck out of here because I'm I'm gonna bleed out. I'm, I've lost a lot of blood because I felt the blood oozing out of my stomach and out of my chest. And um, at that point is when Joe McCain, who was my side, he was right in my face. I hate coffee. I don't drink coffee. And All I could smell was a stinky coffee breath. <laughs> and I remember grabbing him by the shirt and I pulled him close to my face and I said, Joe, don't let me fuck. You. Don't let me die. i got to get home to my boy. My son Drew was only three at the time. I said, don't let me die. i got to get home to my son. Don't let me die. And he said, brother, stay with us. Keep breathing, keep breathing, keep talking. He told me afterwards that when he laid me down, he walked away and cried like a baby. Because he figured those were the last words he was ever going to hear out of my mouth. It was the way I looked. He actually sat down, put his gun by his feet one so of the senior officers who had showed up told him, Get your shit together, Joe. Neighbours coming up with their with their phones and they're recording people. Let's go, the cavalry's coming. So here's a grown man, thirty year veteran, who pretty much fell apart at that scene. But, you know, had no fault of his own. You no, know, he, he just saw he was about to see his friend die, take his last breath, so he thought. So now um, the paramedics finally came, they put me on the gurney. Was striking, and they were rushing me to the back of the ambulance And I remember this distinctly My deputy chief Paul Upton had arrived on scene at that time And as they whisked me by them I heard him ask one of the paramedics How does he look? And I heard the paramedics say I don't think he's going to make the trip Imagine hearing that, Dean Pretty much, he's a fucking dead man I heard that I heard them say, I don't think he's going to make the trip. And I'll tell you, that fired me up like you wouldn't believe. In my mind, I had so much strength and anger, I could have lifted that, that bottle off of that stretcher. That's how pissed off I was. Now, I'm in the back of the ambulance, and I'm yelling at the paramedic who was treating me. Do your fucking job, and I'm going to do mine. You keep me alive, and I'm going to fight to stay alive. i got to get home to my son. My son's three, and he needs his father. And i got to be there for him. And he said, oh, you have two boys? And I said, what are you, a jerk? I just fucking told you I had one. I didn't know then that he was checking my mental status. I thought he was being a punk. No. So they um, eventually got me to the hospital, to Mass General. I remember getting there. It was chaos. It was chaotic. Everybody was scrambling, screaming, yelling, running around. They brought me into the trauma bay. And initially, everybody was around me, cutting off my clothes, putting on gadgets, whatever the hell they were doing to me. Um, to save me, and then a few short seconds went by, and there was nobody tending to me. I'm shivering, I'm naked, they got the freaking AC on in November, you know, they get whatever, it's cold in there, and I remember just looking up at the ceiling, staring at these lights, but I felt a presence over to my left, someone was just standing there, watching me, they were in a white, um, you know, the, the nurse's office. What do you call those things?
0: Uh, the nurse's station? No, the, the, the nurse's clothes. Oh, the um, scrubs. scrubs Not- yeah, they were, yeah. They were the white scrubs. <clears throat> and
1: I was afraid to look initially, and then I just ducked my head and looked. And I saw who I described as a, an older woman, like 65-ish year, years old. She was kind of stocky and chunky. Short, she had big circular round glasses, and her hair was pulled back in a tight, tight bun. And this nurse walked over to me. She, With one hand, she lifted the back of my head up. the other hand, she was massaging my forehead. She said, Damn, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I looked at her and I said, please put a blanket on me. I'm very cold. And I think she did, because I felt warm. I didn't see a blanket, but... I felt warmer than I was just seconds before. And then without any type of notice whatsoever, they rushed me out of that emergency room. They were running down the hall at full speed. My doctor was at the front of the bed pulling it. They took a corner to go to the right to the elevator. And I heard my doctor screaming, hold the elevator, we're going to floor two, floor two. They took a right. I almost toppled over, but they caught me. Upright and I'm thinking, these people are gonna kill me before I even make it to the operating room. What the hell? So now I'm in the elevator and I heard them talking in there about my surgeon telling blocking orders to the nurses. Fire up the X-ray machine, do this, do that. And then within seconds I was in the operating room. I knew I was there because it was much quieter. It was much the atmosphere was much calmer. The lights were much brighter. And again, I'm lying there just staring at the ceiling, and I'm thinking. If we can leave them alive still to so watch all this. And at that point again, I felt a presence to my left side, just someone standing there watching me. And I dipped in my head again and I looked. It was that same older nurse from downstairs. She went stocky with the round glasses and hair pulled back in a tight bun. She came over to me again, looked at the back of my head. I was massaging my forehead with the other hand. she kept saying to me, "You've gotta are got to be okay you are got to be okay I remember looking in her eyes, and I said, just let me die. I'm tired of fighting. I can't fight any longer. I'm tired. At that point, I was so tired of just you know, the, the adrenaline, whatever you want to call it. I just needed to stay alive for my family. And I, I, I ran out of gas. And then um, she was looking in my eyes, and she said, no, oh, no, no, you're not going to die tonight. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. And that's all I heard all I remember, I should say. lay my head down, and I don't remember anything else. So I woke up um, a day and a half later in the ICU. Um, I remember after the anesthesia wore off, I woke up, and I was looking around. I was a little confused. I didn't know where I was. I thought I was going to wake up in heaven or wherever you go. And I saw my wife and my parents. Of course, they're crying. I they had a fiend tube up my nose and down my stomach. My arm was up on the sling I took around to right here. And um, I said, I'm alive. I said, Yes, you are. And I'm like, Oh, I saw you. Hi. One of the nurses heard me speak. She went to go get my doctor, Dr. King. And that's the first time I formally met him. Um, he came through the curtains. And I remember he reached, he was at the foot of my bed. He reached my foot and he squeezed it and he said, Hey, champ, you feel that? I said, Yeah. I'm not paralyzed. He said, no, you're not. you may have front of the luckiest SOB I've met me in my life. He said, I'm a, a colonel in the army. I've done 14 tours to Iraq and Afghanistan. I've never seen anybody survive where you survived. And he told me where I got shot. He said, he took two rounds to the chest, three rounds to the stomach, and one ear arm. On, all the point-blank range. And he died on me twice. Um, he told me that on Did
0: you, say you died, time. Do you say you died twice? Yes,
1: I died twice in the hospital, yes. Uh, The first time for three and a half minutes, he said, and the second time for almost four minutes, gone. And uh, he said on the second episode where I arrested completely, rather than cutting my breastbone, he cut a hole in my diaphragm and he reached in and he massaged my heart back to life. We had the way with all today. I would show you the videos of his testimony, how we did this. So he actually, cut again, cut my diaphragm, reached in, massaged my heart back to life. He said, that's all it took. A few pumps, and I came back, and they, they got me stable. So as he's telling me this at my bedside in the ICU, I'm crying, and I'm thanking him for saving me. And I told him, I said, Doc, there was a nurse here that night that help. I want you to get her for me so I can thank her. I want to meet her. I want to meet this woman. she put me at ease and she really, really calmed me down. And uh, he looked at me and my parents and he said, what nurse are you talking about? I said, well, I saw her in the emergency room when you guys first brought me in. I was in the trauma bay and I described her to him and what she did and what she said. And I said, and then you guys ran me out of that room, the emergency room. You were flying down the hall. You were dragging the bed. You took a right to go to the elevator. You were screaming and yelling to hold the elevator. We were going to floor two. And he looked at my parents and my wife and he did the time-out. He goes, how do you know this? And I said, because I was on the bed. He said, no, my friend, you were dead. You had no pulse. You weren't breathing. You were were dead. You were clinically dead. Dead men can't form memories. I don't know how you know this. You're 100% right in what happened to you." Then he said, tell me more about this nurse. When did you see her again? I said, she was with me in the operating room as well. And, you know, I told them what she said, what she did, and what they were doing to me to part me for the operation. And he looked at my parents again and he said, Listen, again, I don't know how you have all these accurate memories, but you shouldn't have any memories. That man can't form memories. And he said, And as far as the nurse is concerned, there was nobody on my trauma team that looked like that. And two seconds before that, when I described the nurse again, my mom had collapsed in the room. My dad picked her up and put her in the chair and told her You know, we're Portuguese, the old fashioned Portuguese deal, you know. So he <laughs> put her on the chair, told her to be quiet. She's falling her eyes up. And um, well the doctor told me, he assured me that there was no nurse on his trauma team that looked like that. That would have been allowed to touch me, let alone be near me. And but I, I begged him to go and do a um, a more thorough check or research about who this nurse may have been. He said he would. Um a week later, he came in, not even, a couple of days later, he came come back to see me. And he said, buddy, I can assure you with utter certainty that there was no, no nurse on my trauma team that looked like that. I said, all oh, right, this is a mystery. I don't know. So, of course, life goes on. And I did my time in the hospital. And um, the day that I was going to go home, I remember the nurses came up. And I had staples going down, the middle of my chest down towards my groin area cast my belly button, and the nurse said, oh, you're going home today. We're going to remove these, these staples. And I said, no, don't. I don't think I'm healed yet. They said, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. So they removed my staples. They got me dressed, and they put me in a wheelchair and brought me downstairs where the mayor was there from my city, the chief of police, a bunch of other dignitaries and other politicians that were there, the head of the ATF in Boston was there, and they all did their little speeches and what they normally do these political events. And I just sat in the wheelchair quiet. I just wanted to go home and see my boy. And they got me in a cruiser. We had a nice, beautiful motorcade of police cars and motorcycles that escorted me home. I'll tell you, Dean, one of the most proudest moments of my life in a car. I saw police officers all over the place, stopping traffic at intersections. So what do you mean as the motorcade drove by? I was never more proud to be a cop on that day. And to me, that showed me that the that thin blue line exists. It was alive, it was alive. I'll never forget it. And, uh, I made it home, I lived in Bill Ricker at the time. And uh, my mom was at home cooking for an army of officers who were gonna be bringing me home. And we pull up in front of my house My boy's at the door screaming and yelling as joy, jumping up and down again. He's only three, three and a half. Daddy's home, daddy's home, daddy's home. I walked up my walkway very gingerly with a cane, decided to hug him for the first time in almost a month. And when I opened the door, I leaned over to hug him, gave him such a squeeze and a kiss. When I stood up and I walked into the foyer of my house, I felt wet in my stomach, so I reached in under my sweatshirt pulled out my hand. It was full of blood. So when the officers that were there lifted my sweatshirt up and my shirt, my stomach had come undone and my guts were hanging out. So they had to lay me down in the foyer of my house, packed me with towels, and rush me back to the hospital.
0: So they came through the skin and your intestines were exposed.
1: Well, yeah, the skin popped open. I wasn't healed. Those dummies didn't listen to me. And I told them not to take the staples out. I knew it wasn't healed. But because of the movement, and I don't know what happened, what triggered it, but the, the seam that they sewed me up came undone. My insides were showing. And so they had to rush me back to the hospital where I stayed for a few hours where they ran some more tests, cleaned out the wounds, and they st- stitched me up at this time. And they sent me home with two gaping open wounds, one right in the center of my chest and one right next to my navel. And they were very, very deep. The doctor told me that they were going to send a nurse to my house who was going to pack the wounds with with something that would make the flesh come together. Otherwise, he said, the skin would heal, but people would be able to poke their fingers inside my body. And um, I said, okay, that's fine. So the next day, um, I went home that night, slept on the couch. That's where I stayed for weeks, months, actually. I couldn't walk. Um... I, uh, the nurse came over, and she tended to my open wounds, cleaned them out, and then she looked at her medical bag and noticed that she was out of gauze, a right-sized gauze to cover these wounds. So she asked my wife if um, there was a CVS nearby. My wife said, yeah, I have to go to CVS anyway. Tell me what you need. I'll go buy it. So my wife leaves the CVS, comes back, gives her the gauze. The nurse covers my wounds, and she leaves. A few minutes later, I'm watching Oprah or whatever the hell was on TV. And I could hear my wife in the kitchen sniffling. I heard she was—I thought she was crying. So I lowered the volume. And I'm listening intently. And I can hear her sniffling. So I called her in the room. And I asked her to come in. And I asked her what was going on. And she looked like she had been crying. And she sat next to me. And she put one of those pregnancy things in front of me. And I'm looking at it, squinting at it. And it said, "pregnant." I said, you fucking bitch, you cheated on me while I was in the hospital? (laughs) (laughs) So we found out my wife was pregnant. The day I got home from the hospital. Nine months later, nine months later, I had another baby boy born on my birthday. The paramedic was right. I had two boys. I just didn't know.
0: That's incredible.
1: Instead of God taking my life, he gave me a life me real life. The next day, my mom and dad came over. I I mentioned earlier, I'm Portuguese, 100% Portuguese. um, For for the Portuguese people, kale soup is like Windex is for the Greeks, it cures cancer. So, uh, my mom and dad brought some kale soup over because I was on a liquid diet. I couldn't eat anything solid about disorders. And um, my mom came over. My dad went in the kitchen, and my mom had a picture frame like this, clutched to her chest, and she was crying. She came over and sat next to me, and uh, I asked her what she had with her. And she said, I brought something for you. I said, I want you to keep this on your wall. Hmm. Promise me you'll keep it on your wall. I said, absolutely, Mom, what is it? And when she handed me the picture frame, I looked at it, and I just started to cry. I just started to blow my eyes up. The woman in the picture was my nurse. It was my nurse. It was my grandmother. My grandmother who died 30 years ago. That's why no one knew her. And what I found out later through my brother, who's also a police officer and still is, he is the one that called my mother to let her know that I had been shot. He had heard through the grapevine that I died in the hospital. It was that bad. So he called my mom up to tell her that right, I had been shot and it didn't look good. My mom, upon hearing this news, fell to her knees, hit the ground, dropped the phone, the caller's phone. She started praying to her mother. Mom, please save us. Save my son. Don't let him die. But wouldn't you believe? That's who came to my side that night. That's who I saw. Who would talk to me.
0: Speechless, yeah. Mario. This is uh, this is incredible. Again, folks, for those of you that are, well, Mario, we'll give him a minute here. For those of you that are just tuning in, this is difficult conversations by Supply the Y. We're here with Mario Oliveira, retired detective, Somerville PD, and he's sharing. Uh, the kind of story that everybody needs to hear that I don't care if you're a white, black, if you're religious, not religious, if you're a police officer, if you're not, this is a human story. And if you can't feel something when you hear a story like this, I I don't know there's something wrong with you because this is as real as it gets. So go ahead, Mario.
1: So I, I did... Um... Five months recovery at my house. I pushed myself really, really hard. I went back to work in in five months. On March 4th, I went back to solo PD. Full duty. Not not a desk job. Ended up going back to the ATF. Kicking down doors. Getting guns off the street. Only to suffer a major heart attack eight months later. I woke up in the ICU with a uh, balloon pump in my heart. And my surgeon said, No more for you, buddy. I have to call it quits. And I retired at that point. I put in my paperwork. And then in 2015, on June 30th, I, I suffered a major stroke. That left me paralyzed in my whole left side for the whole summer of 2015. I spent the whole summer in the we rehab learning how to walk, talk, feed myself, yada yada. And uh, by the grace of God, I, Got everything back, I and mean, I have some little, some minor issues on my left side, but all in all, I can function pretty well. And um, I don't know how, When do you want me to go into with my retirement process?
0: I'm sorry. Say again, Mark.
1: So when I um, when I reti- when I try to retire, I want the audience to know this. Let me go into. So for the for the purposes of educating your audience those that are officers and non-officers, when you die in line of duty, there are benefits that are afforded to your loved ones, your beneficiaries. So if you die in line of duty, um, the federal government would pay your beneficiary, usually your spouse, 365670 That's what the pay is right now. It changes every couple of years. So as of right now, it's $365,670, tax-free, and the money comes from the Department of Justice, through the, uh, PSOB, Public Safety Officer's Benefits Program. Um, in addition to that, the state of mass would give your spouse a $300,000 tax repayment. So right off the cuff, you're getting over 600000 Your family is. Um, whatever rank you held at the time of your death, your spouse would get your base salary for life. For life. So if you were a sergeant and you died in line of duty, your wife would get your sergeant's pay life every raise the department gets and negotiates for contract negotiations your spouse gets those raises as well any stipends that your union gets your officers she gets them as well they have to pay her as if you're still there if you own a home in massachusetts you have real estate tax exemption your wife would be exempt from paying property taxes on your home if you have children and they want to go to school they have in-state college tuition paid for at any state school, free ride. If, right. if they, your children want to be cops or firemen and have a civil service job, they go right to the top of the list under a wounded veteran. It's called a 402A status. And then lastly, if you're a member of the NRA, they also have a $35,000 on a duty that pay off, tax-free. So those are all the benefits that you get when you die. Now, if you survive like me, the law state you get seventy two percent of your pay, which is a little bit more than half. And then to add insult to injury, you can't earn more than fifteen thousand dollars a year or work more than nine hundred and sixty. And recently they just bumped they just passed a new, new law last this week, I thought last week, raise it up to twelve hundred. if you do die. So essentially, we're worth more dead than we are alive. Really, that's the truth. You're you're worth more financially speaking. You're worth more debt to your family than you are alive.
0: It's infuriating.
1: I find that I find that deeply offensive. It's appalling. So what did I do? I did a lot of research. I being a detective. My job is to to the truth, right? Dig, 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 and find the truth. So I learned at that at that back in that point in 2010 that in 2010 there had been. 49 officers who had retired with 100% of their pay life through their city or town. And basically, the mayor or the town manager of their municipality, they write up special legislation that supersedes the law of 72%, and that officer would get 100%. 100% of their pay, tax-free, with all the raises. And so uh, knowing this, I went to my chief at the time, it was a new chief, Tom Pasquarella, a good guy, and I said, "Chief, this exists. He knew about it." I said, um, "Would you see the mayor and I asked him if he would support me for this? I really would like to get it. I have a three and a half year old little boy and a brand new and a brand new baby, and you know my career is gone. In the blink of an eye, the rug got pulled off from underneath me. I have no fault of my own. I can't live on just a little over half of my pay. I have a mortgage." car payment, bills like everybody else, you know, and um, for a year and a half, a year and a half, I waited at home for a phone call from the mayor,
0: and never got one. He didn't call to check on you in no. a year and a half? Nope. Chief, Not so much as a, hey, how you doing? Never, nothing. never called, and I'll tell you guys right now.
1: That year and a half, hurt me more than getting shot. I sat at home, worried, wondering, not knowing how I was going to take care of my family. I felt like I became a burden. My own family. Here's my wife working extra hours at the law firm. She was cleaning up, mowing the lawn, and I couldn't. No, I felt like a bag of shit. I couldn't do much. Now I've been shot, now I've had a heart attack, and now a stroke. And I was just like, how do I... How do I move on from this? And it did a number on me. I dropped down about 130 pounds, soaking wet. I wouldn't go to any family functions. I never left my room. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody. I hated everybody. I was. just, I just felt. I felt betrayed. Administrative betrayal. I felt like I was pawn. The you didn't give a shit about me. Now how do you know? You, the, your audience saw the clip from this day till this day I'm the high, one of the highest decorated cops in the history of my department I've never been reprimanded suspended never my whole career just nothing but commendations and accolades and everything else and this is how they treat you I wasn't a, tr- a problem child I was never up in the chief's office or the mayor's office for any wrongdoing I wasn't accused of any, any anything bad violating policy never yeah, I came close a couple of times, to be honest with you, but I never did anything bad. You know, I was a good cop. I was a cop's cop who just loved my job. I just loved my job. And to be treated like that afterwards, like I just—I was a broken toy in the land of misfit toys. That's how I felt.
0: Because Mario, one of the things I was going to ask you, but you went right into it, was I was going to ask you what kind of follow-up and what kind of support you received from. Your administration and your local politicians, but it sounds to me like you just kind of, kind of put it out there.
1: Yeah, um, as far as my department, they were awesome. My chief, my deputy chiefs, um, the rank and file, sergeants, lieutenants—they would come up to my house. They would bring the stuff animals for my boys. They were bringing us food. The folks at the ATF were phenomenal. I mean, the police families, as far as our departments, the agencies—they were the best. One that really like got me good was the community of Somerville. People of Somerville, the little kids who would mail me cards, well wishes. They were sending me edible arrangements every day. I thought I could have started my own warehouse of edible arrangements. That's how much I got. Three times a day, people were delivering edible arrangements and food to my house. So the community, the outpouring support of the community was phenomenal. I only wish it was like that now. Oh, it's Travis that's going on. That's for later on. But
0: We'll have back to talk about that another time.
1: Yeah. The community was phenomenal. I can't thank them enough. The school children, the teachers, the residents of Somerville, they were phenomenal. I will never, ever forget their graciousness and their support.
0: So, Mario, we're down. Believe it or not, we got about seven and a half minutes left. Um, so why don't we move into something uh, that's that's super positive because you're doing some great stuff. Tell us about Vipo and New England Cops, if you can sum that up in about five minutes or so. Sure.
1: So, um, After um, waiting a year and a half, I had uh, the late Senator Ken Donnelly, God rest his soul, came to my house and he helped me and went to go see the mayor and finally got my retirement um, pushed through uh, the special legislation. So I did some thinking and I said, you know what? God gave me a second chance here on earth. I'm going to do something good with my life. And I started an organization, a non-profit, called Vipo, Violent Injured Police Officers, along with my partner from Wilbur, Bob DiNapoli, who was also shot and went through a very similar ordeal with his mayor. And Bob and I have legislation pending up at the State House that, if passed, it's going to provide benefits to those that are permanently and violently injured. Small and very narrow window. It's not for the guy or gal that... Plus their knee. They have to be shot, stabbed, run over by a car or a truck, uh, explosive device, hit with a blunt object. Um, if that's passed, it's going to be 100% of your pay, tax-free, up until you reach the age of 65. Your medical bills are going to be covered by the town or the city. Um, no income restrictions on your earnings, so you can actually earn and provide for your family once again. Okay? That's huge. So those are the benefits that you get if this is passed, if you're permanently in, and you can't come back to the job to be a violent act. How
0: can people support you? How can people um, bring more awareness to that cause?
1: Um, they can They can reach out to the state senator or state representative and let them know. Senate Bill 1644 is up there. Senator Bruce Todd is the lead sponsor. And the other sponsor is Senator Cindy Friedman. So those two senators... One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. We have bipartisan support, but we need more support. Last year, we came really close, but then COVID hit us, and they shut everything down. We had a really good chance of passing this thing last year. And I'll tell you right now, law enforcement needs a win. We need a win for the good guys. We're getting killed every day out there. And I mean that. We are getting lambasted by the media and some politicians, and we're like the bastard children right now. And that's not true. Know, the um, it's just not fair. We need a win, we need some protections because we're the people that, that stand between evil and good. No one else has the guts to do it. We're the special ones, get you know, chosen by God to stand on that front line and battle these, these devious people
0: 100%. It's um, so what we're going to do, Mario, why don't we do this? Why don't we make an agreement? that you and I will link up at some point after the show, and let's get some links that we're going to blast out through all the Supply the Y platforms. Folks, if you're out there, if you've liked and you're following the Supply the Y pages, we need your help. We need you to also share and support this. And don't just share the link. We need you to put a little something with it, provide some context as to why it's important to you and why you think your community needs that, and I need you to share that as well. Mario needs you to share that. Bob DiNapoli needs you to share that. And so many other, and the thousands of other police officers across the the Commonwealth and, and, and across the country, we need you to share that and we need you to support that because the several levels of indignity that Mario had to endure, um, it, it didn't need to happen like that. At the very least, when you have people that are going out there and being willing or, the, or being willing to put themselves in harm's way for all of you... Uh, I, I think the least you can do is just make sure that if something like the nightmare that Mario live, lives through happens, that there is some protection in place, not just for Mario, but for, uh, for, for families as well.
1: Absolutely. And I passed my, my legislation, oddly enough. We started here in Massachusetts. And in the last three years, I've passed it in Kentucky in Oklahoma. So I've passed my, my legislation to other states. And my vision, my goal, my dream, is to have it across the whole United States and every state to adopt this, to give protections to all our officers across the country.
0: That's a dream, and, and, and I gotta be honest, after tonight I have to imagine that you know, you've converted a lot of people, and that's now gonna become other people's dream. It is now one of my dreams, and I am going to do what I can to, uh, to use my small platform here to help blast that out there and make and make people aware of that. So like I said, we're going to we're gonna stay in touch like we have. We're going to collaborate, and we're going to see what we can do about making some noise on this bill. And hopefully a lot of people in the audience are with me, and people that are catching the replay of this on the uh, podcast and in the web form will also jump on board. Mario, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to share this with us. I, I, I can't imagine what it must be like, um to have to retell the story and constantly rip the rip the band-aid off every time you speak and every time somebody like me comes along and says hey you got a great story i think that you are a difference maker and i want you to tell your story so i apologize if i'm re-victimizing you but i also want to thank you on behalf of everybody in the commonwealth and beyond um, for making us better people by sharing your story with us Mm -hmm. very much so folks that's going to do it for us tonight again um big thanks to mario big thanks to everybody that's that's taking the time out to watch these shows this is just the beginning of what's going to be an unbelievable season season five of difficult conversations again if you haven't already subscribe follow like supply the Why. we're on linkedin facebook youtube we have the podcast versions for if you're working out or if you're on the job and you can't watch the webcast, don't worry, we got you covered. Check out our podcast. We're on all the major podcast platforms, and this will be available in a couple days. So, folks, again, I just want to thank everybody for coming out and uh, spread the word about what we're trying to do here. So, on behalf of Mario, I want to wish everybody a good night, and as always, hashtag supply the Why. Good night.
1: God bless.